0: are starting a new series today, and nothing gets me more excited than new series. If you want to start uh, turning in your Bible, we're going to be both in 2 Samuel 15 and Psalm chapter 62. This series is called Thirsty for God, and I think it's a good thing for us to start off our, our year of 2021 as being thirsty for God. You know, when I was about 19, my dad, um, I I really think that he wanted to make a man out of me, and what better way to make a man out of a boy than to get him a man's job? And so he contacted one of his old friends who owned a construction company, and I think he borderline begged and pleaded, will you please hire my son and teach him how to be a worker? And so we went over to this guy's house. His name was Kevin. We went over to Kevin's house, and, and dad basically introduced me as, this is the boy that I want you to make into a man, and can you do this? And I could tell that Kevin... Evan just wasn't really impressed. And who could blame him? I mean, I was like 132 pounds. Um, I was shy. I couldn't talk. And, and I, I realized after I started working there that uh, I liked a certain roughness and toughness that most people I worked with had. So he begrudgingly hired me though. And, and not very long after that, it was six o'clock in the morning, I started working with him. He basically put me up on some beams of metal. We were building an airport hangar at uh, Little Rock Airport, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton International H- Airport, or as I like to call it call it hillbilly international we were building an airplane hanger there and he put me up on top of a beam and he said okay here's what you're gonna do you take this piece of metal and this piece of metal and line up the holes and he gave me a bag of bolts to put a bolt through the hole and tighten it up it was really really mentally ang- you know mental work there that i had to do but he put me up on this beam and put me to work and i was working with some other guys and i noticed about 8 30 i was starting to get just a little little parched. Like it was it this wasn't normal like 8 30 on a regular day when I'm still in my bed, you know, sleeping. I wasn't thirsty for water at 8 30, but it was it was dry up there and it was hot and I was just getting thirsty and I thought, well I need some water, but nobody else seemed to get water and it was my first day and I didn't want to I didn't want to get fired and I didn't want to make a bad impression. So I just I stayed up on that hot metal and and just kept on working through the thirst. And by 10 o'clock that morning I was felt fairly well certain I was gonna die if I didn't drink some water. This was a new thing me i found out that yes water breaks were allowed in fact he encouraged it and that was one of many 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 hot days that summer working on this this metal building one particular day we tested the temperature up on the roof that we were working on it was over 135 degrees up there it was hot and what i learned is that the hotter the day was the more thirsty we would be Now, that makes a lot of sense to us because it doesn't matter if we were kids playing outside when we were young on the hot days. You guys remember how good that water from a green hose tasted? Have you tasted water from a green hose lately? It's not that good. We were desperately thirsty. It was horrible. It doesn't matter if we have a job working outside like I did or if we go to the gym. The hotter it is, the more thirsty we get. And we all know that physically that's true. But I think it's spiritually true as well. See, God uses the hot circumstances in our lives to make us thirsty for him. And the hotter it gets, the more we long for him. And we might not all know this, but our souls are constantly, constantly crying out for God. Our souls are constantly thirsty for God. We find lots of ways that we try to quench this thirst. And some of them are innocent enough. Maybe it's hobbies and, and like deer hunting or, or, man, if the Razorbacks would just win a game, my soul wouldn't be so thirsty. I'd be so much happier if that football game went my way. And Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we try to quench our thirst with like business success. If I could just get that next promotion or that paycheck could be a little bit bigger, or I could get another bonus. Maybe maybe we do it with friends. I just need some friend time right now. Or I need to take my family. And you know what would quench the thirst of my soul is a week at the beach. That would be great for me. And sometimes we quench it with, you know, buying things. You know, how doesn't it just feel good when you click add to cart on Amazon? Like there's something about that, like it just feels better when I get new clothes or a new vehicle or, or new something, uh, sometimes we turn to maybe even more destructive ways of trying to quench this thirst. Uh, for some reason, human beings think that if we pour enough alcohol into our souls, that our thirst will be quenched. And if that's not enough, maybe we need a new drug or a stronger drug that'll get us there, both pharmaceutical and not. Maybe, maybe that will fix us and, and keep us from being so thirsty. Maybe we think that our thirst is because we're lonely and So many people spend time just looking for somebody to love them. And even if it's just for one night and it's just physical love, just just to feel like things are better. And it doesn't matter how we quench our thirst. It doesn't matter if it's a destructive way or an indestructive way. The truth is, is those things will only last for just a few minutes. Our thirst may be quenched, but we'll be thirsty again almost immediately. I've noticed that that anticipation of opening that box from Amazon is awesome until you get in the house and you open it up and you use your knife get on there and pull that out and you're like, yes, and then all of the joy is gone. Nothing will quench our thirst long term. About that same time I had that job as a construction worker, some of my friends hired on for a farmer out in Pleasant Plains, and he was, he was um, hiring them to load and stack hay bales on a trailer. As he drove through the field in his air-conditioned truck, he hired all these teenage boys to pick up these hay bales and throw them up on the truck. And I was smart enough to know, I'd been around square hay bales enough to know, uh, I'm not in on that for no $50 a day. You guys go for that. And the same thing for them. They worked really hard, and they picked these things up and, and threw them up on the trailer, and they were so thirsty, and they realized there is no water fountain in the middle of a hay field. And so eventually they said something to the farmer they were working for. He said, oh, I forgot. I got you guys. Yeah, I bought you guys some drinks. And it and went over and pulled out a cooler. And, and in this cooler, there was not a single bottle of water. But there were Cokes and Dr. Peppers and Mountain Dews. Now, in his defense, I think he was being well-intentioned that these kids were going to be teenagers and they're going to like to drink Cokes. So he bought them all of these Cokes. But I think we all know that it doesn't matter how many Cokes you drink when your soul is crying out for water or when your, your body is crying out for water. It, it just makes the thirst worse. And as we look at the things that we try to quench our thirst with in life, the truth of it is they will never quench our thirst even if they appear to be wet and cold. Now, this is important because God uses circumstances in our life to make us more thirsty. The hotter it is, the thirstier we get, and the more we seek God we see this in the life of David in the Bible. You guys know David, right? We love uh, some David, right? He's like a little shepherd boy. He plays a harp or a guitar or a piano if he's Baptist, whatever it is. He he plays something out there, you know, and he, and he praises God and, and And the prophet Samuel comes and, and anoints him to be king of Israel. And it's still a long road from there. I love David. You give this man some rocks and a slingshot, he'll go kill all the giants that you want. And he, he eventually raises up into the point where he does become the king of Israel. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. But even in the story we love about David, David had times where the circumstances of his life were hot. And when he got very, very, very thirsty for God. Even in David's life, God worked in him, allowing things to happen that caused David to run to God, to flee to God, and to cry out for God. And we're going to look at one today. We're going to look at some of David's family drama. You guys know family drama, right? You know, like Aunt Flo can't sit next to Eugene at the Christmas table because they didn't get along over some of 20 years ago. You guys know that? Uh, I said, David's family drama makes ours look like, like little kindergarten stuff. He's got some big stuff going on in his life. So if you've got your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're, we're going to read this story here, verses 1 through 6 to start off with. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See thy thy matters are good and right. But there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in this land, that every man which hath any suit or any cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it, and it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do obstinence, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. On, and on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for the judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So this story introduces to us Absalom, David's third son. The Bible also tells us that this was probably David's most favorite son. And the Bible tells us a lot about him. It even tells us how he looks. And the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time telling us how people look. But if it ever does mention it, you should probably pay attention because it's important to the story. The Bible tells us that Absalom was good looking. He was handsome, handsome. He was perfect from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. That's literally the way that the Bible puts it perfect in every way it also tells us that he had this this long beautiful flowing hair thick hair and and I got to thinking about this this morning you know who Absalom was is Thor from the Marvel movies. That's what he looked like. The big muscles and everything, perfect chiseled jaw, all of that. That's who he was. And I shouldn't have mentioned that. Now all of our ladies are going to have trouble paying attention. Stay with me. This is about God, okay? We're not going to think about Thor. But he was perfect looking in every way with this long flowing hair. You, you think, well, if he's that good looking, he's got to have a horrible personality because not everybody can have it. No, no, no. Absalom was charming too. He, he had all of the charm in the world. He knew how to work people. He knew how to make people feel valued. He was that guy that you walked into a room and you looked for because he just made you feel special in some way well if he's charming and he's good looking he, he must be dumb right no this was a very very cunning man he was the complete package smart in every way he was a political operator he knew exactly what to do to win the hearts of people around him now with his good looks his charm and his smarts he decided something he decided I would be better on the throne than my father I should take the throne from him. I would be a better king than he is and I want it. The problem is is he wanted it now. Even though he probably would have inherited it after David's death. He said I want it now and so he hatched this plan to take it away from David. So in this story we're going to look and in your notes there we're going to look at four problems David has. The first problem that David has in this story is he has a betraying son. Up here on the screen. He has a betraying son. Now what Absalom did is he kind of exploited a problem in the system. At this time in Israel, there, there was no Supreme Court. There was nobody to be a final ruler except for the king. And so if you had a dispute with a neighbor over land, or you were having family drama, or you had some kind of something that needed to go to a justice to decide the issue for you, you would come and you would appeal to the king. King, they have taken this from me. They're doing this. King, can you fix this? Can you issue a royal decree? And people would come to David to do this. But David's king over Israel, he can't hear every little complaint of everybody that comes complaining to him. So many people never got to talk to David. Only, only big cases made it to David. Only really important things made it to David. And Absalom knew that he could exploit this. And so outside of town, he sat up on the side of the road and he waited for people that were coming to David with a complaint, coming to David with some kind of a problem. Here you have Absalom, perfect looking, Thor body, hair everywhere. He's got this beautiful chariot sitting on the side of the road. He has an entourage of fifty people that just follow him around. And as, as people come, he says, "Tell me your problems. What's 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 going on in your life? What what do you need?" And they would tell him, and he'd go, "Yes, yeah, you're right in that." You've You've got a really big problem, and you know, it's it's such a shame because you were absolutely right. You would win this if, if you could appeal to the king. But unfortunately, the king hasn't set up anybody to hear your complaints. He hasn't set up anybody to be a judge of this. And and Absalom looks at him and goes, you know, it's too bad I'm not in charge. If if I was in charge, man, I would take care of this for you because you mean something to me. And then what he would do is he would offer them a sign of respect that was very rare. In order to understand this, you need to understand the custom of Israel. Is that In Israel, when you were trying to show respect to somebody, you kissed them. Now, not a romantic kiss, but a kiss of respect, just a peck on the cheek. And if somebody was of equal social status to you, you showed them that respect by kissing them on the cheek. But, but if they were of a higher social status than you, you would take their hand and you would kiss their hand. And so here you have these people, these commoners coming up to the son of the king. And of course, as they're parting to show him respect, they are supposed to take his hand and kiss his hand to show him respect. But he waves them off. He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to serve you. I'm, I'm here for you. And so he takes their hand, those who are lower than him, and he kisses their hand saying, you are higher than I am. Now, the Bible tells us that what, Absalom, what he does with all of this is that he steals the heart, steals the heart of these people with the modern day equivalent or the equivalent of the modern day shaking hands and kissing babies. He steals the heart. A couple of things I want to notice about that. Number one, look at how easy it was for him to work his way into the hearts of the people. And this is just a side point, but we as a church in this community, if we are really at war for the hearts and souls of people around us, I want you to look at the example of Absalom. Even though he's, he's the bad guy, look how easy it was. He served, he listened, and he respected. I think we can draw some wisdom from that as we go forward this year looking for opportunities to sacrificially serve, but that's just a side point. Here's the main point. I love that the Bible uses the word stole. It doesn't say he won or he got. The Bible literally uses the word stole, which means he took something that didn't belong to him. This respect in these hearts that he was receiving, these are people who should have been honoring and following and loving David, the one true king, the king set up by God. But Absalom came up with this plot to steal their hearts, to take what didn't um, belong to him. And we all know that if you can control someone's heart, you can control their actions. So David's problem number two, the second problem he has, is that he has stolen influence. His influence has been stolen from him. We'll continue on with this story, verses 7 through 13 here. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed into Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, Then you shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they were in their simplicity and knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gaia, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. So here's what Absalom does. Once he spent several years doing this, winning the hearts of people, and people go away from Jerusalem and they're like, you know, King David had no time for me, but his son, man, I think he would be a great leader. And after years, this starts to infect people as they hear these stories and go, this would be the guy that fixes all of our political problems. If if only he was the king. Once Absalom knew that he had all of that put together, he prepared for a revolution. He went to another city where he then announced that he was the king. And because the people's hearts were already with him, they accepted him as the king. Where does this leave David? David's the king. You can't have two kings. So now David's in an interesting position. David's either going to be killed by his own son or have to kill his own son, his favorite son. And this brings us to our, our third problem that David has, that as he is um, doing all this, he has lost his kingdom. Problem number three was a lost kingdom. On top of that is if you can't add insult to injury. Flashy smile and some nice hair stole this kingdom from David. And on top of that, he reaches out to David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel. And he says, will you come to me? Now, what you've got to understand is that this man is not just a friend of David. This is the premier counselor to kings in the country. The Bible says later as we, as we look at this story that, that David and Absalom both looked at him as though he was speaking as an oracle of God. This, this was a major player in the political world. And so when he leaves David to go to David's son, it basically seals the fate that David is no longer the king. David loses his most trusted and one of his closest friends problem number four is that David is dealing with a betrayal of friends so where is David he's lost his kingdom he's lost his friends his his son has turned against him wants to kill him and this kingdom that God gave him that he served with such a full heart now they've all turned against him as well can you imagine the hurt that David was going through at this moment betrayed by two of the closest people to him some of us in here have felt that kind of betrayal we've been betrayed by fake friends and some of us have had a spouse that said that they would always be there and and they just weren't some of us were betrayed by our parents who said they should have taken care or who should have been taking care of us but in one way or another they failed at that some of us have had a situation like David where where children have written you off Imagine the hurt David was going through in just those circumstances. But David was dealing with more than hurt. He was also dealing with loss. If you look at David, his entire life was wrapped up in being king of Israel since he was a teenager. And now he's lost that kingdom. He's lost everything that he works for. It'd be the equivalent of us losing a job that we had worked at for 40 years and all of a sudden the next day it's just it's gone this company that we helped build up or, or these people that we serve gladly just turn against us in a moment's notice and so David deals with loss can you imagine the loneliness that David felt his best friend is gone his son wants to kill him he feels like the entire kingdom hates him because they support his son over him he's got to be lonely he's got to feel like he's being forgotten they found another king. And some of us know something about loneliness as well. We've all been there. And this is the point where as Christians, when we we get in these situations like David's in, we ask, why would God let this happen? Why did God let my friends betray me? Why did God let my marriage fall apart? Why did God let me lose somebody or something that I love so dearly? And we tend to start thinking that God has forgotten me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't need me. Because we look at the story of David and we look at our own stories and we say, David didn't deserve all of this. And we look at our stories and say, neither did I. But listen closely, this is very important. If you look at the story, if you continue to read this, God did not abandon David and God has not abandoned me and you when we go through this. This is our take home truth. Our next take home truth is adversity in life is not the same as being forgotten. Adversity in life is not the same as being forgotten. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. David is the original rags to riches story. He goes from being a shepherd boy where his family says, take care of the sheep. And even when a prophet comes to Jesse's house and says, one of your sons is the king of Israel. Jesse doesn't even call David in from the fields. It's like, he it couldn't be David. David's not allowed to come to our parties. Leave him out there. It's just just David forgotten by his own family. He rises from that position to king of Israel. And we tend to look at that story and go look at what David or what God did in David's life but, but the story of David's life is not what God did in his position or where he lived or who he became. The story of David's life is that he went from a life of spiritual rags to a life of spiritual riches. Even David needed to grow in God and, and what I see in this story is that David is growing spiritually because he is thirsty in this moment. We're giving some insight into David's thirst and if you want to turn there we're going to look at Psalm 62. David wrote 73 of these psalms. The, these songs, these worship songs, or these prayers of worship, however you want to praise it. He wrote 73 of these different psalms. Some of them are beautiful. The ones that most of us know are probably written by David. But listen, this is, let's do some math. David wrote at least 25 of them in this little short period of time when he was fighting with Absalom. When his son had betrayed him, when he had lost his friends, when he had lost his kingdom. Let me tell you again, let me make sure that I'm making my point here. Out of all of David's life, he wrote 73 Psalms, at least 25 and possibly five more. So 25 to 30, over a third of them were written during this one season in David's life. And what that tells me is that during this time, David was thirsty for God. David was thirsty for God in his circumstances. He was thirsty for God in his hurt and in his loneliness. This is the thirstiest time in his life where he wants to be close to God. One of these Psalms written at this time, written specifically at the time when Absalom is stealing the hearts from people is Psalm 62. And I wanted to just look at David's heart and and get a picture of what's in his heart here. So let's read verses one through seven of Psalm 62. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall you be and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Look at what David does here. I think the first thing to notice about this is anytime you see a word repeated in scripture multiple times in several verses if you have that word used more in six verses than you have verses more than six times there's a point to that and in David's first seven verses here he uses the word my 14 times 14 times does he say "my," and my is a personal possession word and what he's saying here is is no matter what I lose, if I lose my friends, if I lose my son, if I lose my kingdom, I still have something. No matter what, I still have my God. I still have his presence with me. He is still my salvation. He is still here with me. I think it's only in times of loss that we truly appreciate what we really have. And I think for David, that's what we're seeing in his thirst, and why he's so thirsty is, for the first time, maybe in a long time. While he has always loved God, he truly knows what he has in God for the first time, because everything else is either taken from him or on the verge of taken from him. I had a friend some time ago who, who lost her husband to cancer, and left with small four, four small children, and of course they had no dad. It was just really really heart-wrenching time to see them go through this and and one of the things that helped get those children through is they would wake up in the morning and and they would just miss their dad and and one of the ways that they would get through this is they had these old tapes of him talking and they would pull these tapes out and plug them in and they they just listen to his voice and find comfort in the fact that even though he's not here I still have his voice with me if you think about it when he was still here when dad and husband was still around When he could be seen at any time, be asked a question at any time, I doubt those tapes were ever listened to. Nobody wants to listen to dad when he's in the next room. But when he was gone, those tapes became precious and invaluable because it was all that she had left and all those children had left. And that's what we see in David's relationship with God here. In this moment, he had always had this relationship with God, but it becomes invaluable to him because everything else is gone. And this is the one thing that nobody can take away from David is his relationship with God. And so we see him thirsty to draw close to God. David defines what he has in God in these verses. Number one, he calls him, "He is my defense." my defense. That word actually means fortress. So, so David is looking at God and saying, this is my hiding place. These are the walls that I get behind. My God is my place of safety. Something that David wouldn't have needed or wouldn't have thought of if he wasn't in danger. It means a place that he can hide and feel safe all the time. He says, my God is my rock. The the steady place that I can build on. This one thing that is consistent in my life that that is nothing else. My rock is always there. And He then says, my God is my salvation. David looks in the midst of his hardest time in life. He looks to the future and he looks for the hope that he has. He's understanding that his eternity isn't controlled by what's going on now or what he's losing now his eternity is controlled by God and it cannot be taken away from him this is when David truly truly cries out to God because to David God was not some man in the sky that sits on a cloud that you can throw random prayers at and maybe he hears them or he doesn't for, for David God was his hiding place his safety his sanctuary his steadiness and his hope Our next take-home truth is this, is we put our trust in God because he is our hiding place, steadiness and hope. Isn't that what our souls thirst for? In any situation, is a safe place, consistency, something that never changes, and hope? In our hardest times, don't we want to know how this is going to end? Don't we hang on to in the midst of 2021 and a pandemic and all the things that we've we've gone through in the past year? Don't we hold on to it's going to be better one day? And David sees God as his hope. God can be this for us as well if we allow Him. How would our lives change if we really trusted God to take care of those three jobs? How would we live differently if we really, really, truly, honestly trusted? Not just said that we trust, but if we really trusted Him. You know, I've noticed something about kids. Kids are funny. They're funny looking and funny sounding and funny acting. They're just funny all around. I've noticed something about kids. Kids play hard, don't they? They're just playing with reckless abandon. Nothing else in the world matters but what's going on now. And because of that, kids fall down a lot or run into things a lot or get hit in the head a lot. Kids have lots of injuries. And I've noticed about the youngest kids that when something happens to them, if they fall down and scrape their knee, there's this, this split instant where they look up, that head pops up, and immediately they look to their parents. And and they're asking a question of their parents, what now? And in that instant, you can control that child's reaction. If you hop up and go, oh no, my baby, and run over and pick them up, that kid is gonna scream their, their lungs out because they think that they are dying because you think that they're dying. But if that kid falls down and scrapes their knee, and they go, I'm scared, and I think it hurts, but they look at their parent, the head pops up, and if they see that reassuring face of their parents saying, you're okay, get up. You can control that child's reaction. I think that if we trusted God the way that kids trust their parents, where we could look at him and hear his reassuring voice saying, yeah, I know your knee hurts, but you're okay. Get up and keep going. It would change the way, that, it would change our faith. David is a little kid in this He's fallen, he's scraped his knee, he's scared, he thinks that he's hurting, and he looks to God to find that assurance. And I wanna notice how David changes in just a few short verses. As he starts writing this, you have to think, he's got all of this anxiety, all of this worry. What's gonna happen to me? Are they gonna kill me? They're taking my kingdom, I've lost everything. Why does my son hate me so much? All of this stuff, David begins to sit down and he just begins to write about how much he trusts God as my safe place, as my hope, is my steadiness and my continuity. And I want you to look in just a few verses how David grows. I'm going to read two verses to you again. This is verse two. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Verse six. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Those verses are identical with the exception of one word. In verse two, he writes this, my God is all of these things to me. And he says, but I won't be greatly moved. And that that word moved means shaken or I won't greatly waver. And so what he's saying is I might be moved a little bit. I might be a little shaken. I might be a little bit, but just a little bit, not a lot. But as he continues to focus on God, as, as he continues to pursue God in this, he gets down to verse six and he decides, I've got to write that again. And this time he says, I'm not gonna be moved even a little. I won't be shaken even a little because i have trust in my god just like a child who looks at their parent and finds that encouragement it says get up david sees god telling him here get up let's continue to read the rest of this psalm verse 8 this is david now he's talking to us trust in him at all times ye people pour out your heart before him god is a refuge for us Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie, to be laid in the balance. They are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God, and unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his word." If you look at David here, he now starts to give encouragement to others. This encouragement that he's found in himself when he looks to God instead of wondering what's going to happen to him. And this is what he says. He says, pour out your hearts. Pour out your hearts before God. What, what does that even mean to pour out? I think we'll, we use that a lot as, as Christians. We, we pour out our hearts to God. It can be pouring out in a good way or pouring it out in a bad way. But as I really thought about this, think about what it means to pour out of something. You can't pour out something that's empty. If I had an empty cup and I turned it upside down, nothing pours out of it. You can only pour out out of something that is full. And sometimes we pour out our praise to God because our hearts are so full of worship. God, you, you are my Savior. But sometimes we pour out to God what's in our heart and what our heart is full of, worry and anger and hurt and betrayal. And so David says that whatever your heart is full of, you can pour it out. But secondly, you have to have a place to pour it. And David says that our place to pour it out is before God. The words before God in here means in his sight. Give him everything. Pour it out where he can see it. Let him have it. I love how the Bible is so excellent at describing things that don't even connect. The Bible didn't say trickle out your heart before God. Slosh out a little bit so it's not so heavy. The Bible says pour it out. Give it all to him. And this is what David has learned and what he's saying. David says, I can let go. I can empty my heart to him and I can completely unload it. So if we find ourselves in a time where we need strength or safety or hope, all of those things are found in God. David explains why he feels this way. David has rejected everything else to quench his thirst. You think about David. He is a king. Think of all the things he could have put his hope and trust in in this moment when he's fixing to lose things. He could have put his trust in his military. I have a military and men that will fight for me. I can put my trust in the security of my palace. Yes, Absalom will come, but he'll never take over this. We can fight him off. He could have put his hope in his crown. You can't be a king without a crown. As long as I have a crown, I'm actually in charge put his hope in his own reputation you remember when they used to write songs about me when i killed goliath those those people those people haven't forgotten who i really am could have put his hope in his wealth but he rejected all of that and i I think that you and i put our trust and our hope in a lot of things that are not god be honest what do you put your hope in when things aren't going well is it your good looks i blew that one out of the water a couple weeks ago didn't i is it is it your money your job your reputation yeah finances are hard right now but I'll make it out because I'm a hard worker what is it that we truly put our hope in when we should be putting it in God I can tell you this it doesn't matter what you put your hope in it will let you down every time but God never will and on David's darkest day he knew this He knew that all those things were going to let him down. This kingdom who had once loved him, they've let him down. But David knew that God never would. For David, it was more than just a hope. David had a close connection with God. I love that the scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. And throughout my entire life, I always looked at David as a special man. And I looked at that saying as like, David was special. God couldn't help but love David because he was so special. He did good things. That's how I've always read that until I began studying this week. And I think that David was after a man after God's own heart, meaning that David chased the heart of God because he truly understood the goodness of God. He truly understood to trust God. He truly understood what God could do in his life, and he truly understood the power of God. And David was way ahead of the curve in his understanding of this. Some hundreds of years later, uh, a descendant of David was born in a stable in a little town of Bethlehem, the town of David. And and this, this young baby would grow up to be known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, And he came here with a mission and a purpose. And in the midst of his mission, in the midst of his ministry, he finds himself sitting beside a well with a woman who comes up, an outcast in her own society. And Jesus looks into her heart and he realizes this woman is thirsty. She had tried to quench her thirst with men. The Bible tells us that. Well, I have no doubt that she tried to quench her thirst in money and other things, but she's thirsty and she's looking for something. And Jesus has this conversation with her. Jesus has this talk with her, letting her know that this will never work. See, Jesus knew that no matter what she did, she was drinking Cokes when her body desired water. She needed a savior. She needed the love of grace and God. And this is what Jesus said. He said, I have what you're thirsty for. I have this this water that will quench your thirst because you can keep drinking of all of these things out here. You can drink of a new lover every night. You you can drink of your reputation. You can look for friends. You can try to find all these things that are gonna satisfy you, but Jesus says, you're gonna be thirsty again in the morning. But I have, I have water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And she became a follower of Christ. Live if you wanna start making your way up here. And Jesus Christ offers that same gift to me and you. Because just like that woman, we all find our own things that we try to quench our thirst with. Some of them may be a little bit more innocent than others, but we're still trying to finish our th- We're still trying to quench our thirst. But that emptiness in our life will never be changed until we find him. Some of us are here this morning and we've been trying to go through life finding this or that. Some of us are Christians and been trying to do that. But the truth is, until we find our trust in him, our souls will never, never be satisfied. If you're here this morning, that gift is available to you if you've never accepted it. That gift of of the water that keeps you from thirsting again. The gift of a God who is your strength, who is your salvation, who is your rock, and who is your hope. And if you haven't accepted that, it's it's time to put your faith and trust in him. And it's the only thing that's going to make you feel fulfilled. It's the only thing that's going to fix the emptiness that you feel in your heart. If you feel like God's calling you to do that now, this is available to you and I would love to talk with you. And for the rest of us, maybe it's time for us, like that child, to learn to look at our parent again and find our assurance in him instead of the circumstances around us.